Hey, if you've got your Bibles, I'm gonna, and I know many of you do, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open to the New Testament book of Titus. Uh, we're going to be in Titus for the next six, seven weeks in the book of Titus. Titus is a, a, a part of the New Testament uh, under the category of the pastoral epistles. So First and Second Timothy and Titus. And these are writings from the Apostle Paul uh, to these young pastors, these young church planners. And Titus was written in about 64 AD, so about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's uh, written by the Apostle Paul to a young church planter, a guy by the name of Titus, yeah, they're very creative uh, in how they uh, identify these books. And Titus was actually an intern for the Apostle Paul. His name shows up 13 times uh, in the New Testament, Titus does, uh, outside of the book of Titus, primarily in the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, so Paul refers to Titus several times, really describing this young whippersnapper intern that was working under him. And so we're going to read this book today where Paul is writing this letter uh, to Titus, who is now um, in a very difficult place, uh, in a very difficult time. He is on the island of Crete, uh, in the middle of the Mediterranean. The name Titus means honorable, and what we're going to see over the next several weeks is Titus is going to lean into that characteristic. He's going to lean into that virtue of being honorable. The other thing you need to know about Titus as a church planter, is that he is not Jewish. He is actually a Gentile. And this is really important because the ministry context for Titus is that he is going to do ministry, and he is doing ministry on the island of Crete where there's not a lot of Jews. There's not a lot of uh, Messianic Jews. It's filled with Gentiles. And so what this means is it gives Titus street credibility. He can go onto the island or be on the island and talk to people as peers, not as someone who's really, really different uh, from them. Although, of course, he is different because he's got Jesus in his life. Uh, so this is just kind of wanted to give you a little bit of an overview of the book of Titus before we jump in this morning. Titus 1. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this time together to gather, to uh, be reminded, God, um, that when we are weak, that you are strong, that whatever closed doors we might have uh, brought into us this morning, that God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you might open those doors, and that God, you might uh, speak to us, reveal yourself to us, and God, that we might leave this place different, challenged, renewed, and strengthened. And now, God, as we read your word, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when I was a kid uh, growing up, uh, maybe eight, nine, ten years old, uh, my buddies and I, Dean Poser, James Tischer, and Bob Larson, we loved to roam around the neighborhood. We spent a lot of childhood just outdoors in southern Minnesota doing what young boys do. But every now and then, uh, we would kind of wear out. We would come in, turn on the television, and watch The Little Rascals. Anybody remember the Little Rascals? I love the Little Rascals. And one day, uh, James, Bob, and uh, Dean and I were watching the Little Rascals, and it was the episode of the He-Man Woman Haters Club. Remember the He-Man Woman Haters Club? And we're like, oh, 
we kind of get this. And it wasn't so much the He-Man Woman Haters Club. We had nothing against women. We were just boys being boys. But what really intrigued us was the clubhouse of the Little Rascals. Remember the clubhouse? It was awesome. They would gather together and they would do their club things. And, um, and, and we thought, well, we need a clubhouse. And we lived in a newer development, uh, so there were lots of empty lots, and there were uh, builders out building stuff, uh, which meant there was piles of scrap lumber. And we thought, well, you know, if uh, Spanky Buckwheat Alfalfa, you know, can make a clubhouse, we can too. And we didn't sit down and, you know, do drawings or anything like that. We just went and got our dad's hammers and hand saws, and then we just milled about at the construction sites where there was scrap lumber and nails and two-by-fours, and then we just kind of dragged it over to a, a lot next to our house. And for a couple of weeks, we just pounded and sawed, pounded and sawed, pounded and sawed. And I wish I had a picture to show you uh, of what it looked like. But uh, so I actually found this online and I thought, you know, that looks way better um, than our uh, clubhouse. But it was, it was similar. It was a box with a flat roof. And we thought this was amazing. This was awesome. And again, we're probably 10 years old. So we didn't have any money, but we were just resourceful and we had lots of energy. Well, we kind of pulled together our allowance and we had a couple bucks. And so we went down. One of our parents took us down to one of the local hardware stores and we got a piece of remnant carpet or rug or something like that. And we pounded it into the floor because we were, you know, this was going to be an official clubhouse uh, for us guys there. And we loved it. It was awesome. It was amazing. And we just, we just thought we were, you know, really uh, pretty something pretty special until it rained. And then we scattered from the clubhouse, went home, and it rained, and it rained, and it rained. And that clubhouse got so soaking wet and it seemed like it wasn't just days or weeks, but it seemed like it was months or even years before that carpet, uh, that remnant carpet ever dried out. Well, uh, it, it, it seemed like it, but, you know, we didn't go back to the clubhouse because you couldn't go in there. It was soaking wet, and you would go in, and immediately, you know, it smelled, and everything was wet and musty, and so we just kind of let the clubhouse sit there for a couple more days. And finally, one of our parents said, that's an eyesore. You got to take that thing apart. And so we took it apart nail by nail and then dragged all the scrap lumber back to the pile of the guys who were building the houses in our neighborhood. I think in many ways, our clubhouse is how many Christians in America today view their Christian faith, how they put it together. A scrap here, a piece there, no real plans, just kind of try a bunch of different things, kind of ragtag, see what happens. But then the life, life comes along, the rains, the storms of life come along. And many Christians I talk to who do not have a very uh, solid foundation in their Christian faith, they can't figure out why their faith isn't strong enough to take on the battles, the storms of life. And I think it's because they never had a blueprint. They never had a plan. They never had a guideline to help them, to construct something of faith for them in a way that would really help them to sustain 
all that comes at them through life. And so this morning, we're going to look at this New Testament book of Titus and really look at this idea of developing a a blueprint plan from an experienced church planter to a young church planter, saying, Titus, this is how you got to do it. And I want to explain to you, bit by bit, piece by piece, not ragtag, not scattershot, but we're going to be very methodical about it. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, looking at the blueprint for building a healthy church, what it really means to be on mission together in the name of Jesus Christ. This is an incredibly relevant book for you and for me. And so the Apostle Paul begins in Titus 1.1 this way, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I like how Paul begins this letter. He just identifies. He's like, hey, Titus, it's me, Paul. And who am I? I'm a servant, I'm a doulos, someone who has willingly let go of their life, their freedom, a servant of Christ and an apostle of Jesus Christ, apostello, one who is sent. So Paul gives himself these uh, these characteristics. Titus, this is who I am. I'm a servant for Christ, but I am sent out into the world to further the faith of God's elect. God's elect, that's us, the church. Those of us who have been called, gathered together. So Paul's writing to Titus, but he's writing to the church uh, in Crete, but he's also writing for us today. And their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So Paul says, here's the deal. I'm going to help you to understand the truth. And when you understand the truth, it's going to lead to godliness. And so what the book of Titus, uh, this letter, just these three chapters in the New Testament, it's all about, it's about doctrine. It's about understanding. It's about teaching uh, of Jesus Christ and and how that teaching uh, impacts our living. This is why doctrine is so important for us. This is why we spend so much time at worship here at Faith. It's because we believe that Christian doctrine matters. Orthodox Christian, God's teaching, this actually means something. And so we spend a lot of time in this. And sometimes every now and then I hear from some people, oh, you preach a little bit long. I I get it. But sometimes we need to just sit in God's word and I I don't want to short shrift any of us. We got to really spend some time digging deep in God's word because this stuff matters. This doctrine matters. What we think, how we think, it translates into action and how we live our lives. I love uh, the, the, the quote by Henry Ford, and you've probably heard this before. He says, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. And of course, what Henry Ford is saying is the mind is a powerful thing. What you put in here, how you train your mind, how how you put scripture into your head, it is going to inform your life and how you live out your life uh, throughout the rest of the week. Ideas matter. And God's word, God's doctrine, God's teaching matters. And Paul says it this way, truth 
leads to godliness. So Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted by me by the command of God my Savior. Oh my goodness, Paul, run on sentence here, right? This is really, really long. But what Paul tells us right away is not just who he's writing to and a little bit about himself and this idea that our ideas, our doctrine, the doctrine of Scripture leads to action. But he says, so that, so that you have hope in eternal life. He says, this is why I'm writing this, so that you can have hope in eternal life. And those of you who are Christians, who are Jesus followers, you know that we do not live in this world where our hope is in this world. This world is wasting away. This world is broken. Our hope is not in this world, in the joys and pleasures. Oh, there's plenty of good things in this world. But we do not put our hope and our trust in this world. We put our hope in eternal life, in the life to come. Because someday you're going to die, and when you die, your body is going to return to the earth, and your body's going to decompose. It'll take about 30 years for your body to decompose. Or if you're cremated, about 30 minutes, you decide, however you want to do it. 30 years, 30 minutes. But your body's going to turn to dust. It's going to turn to ash. It's going to turn back to dirt. Our bodies are made up of the same 17 chemical elements as in dirt. You will become dirt again. It's just a matter of time. And some of you might be a little concerned about the whole burying versus cremation thing, so I just want to camp out on that for a second. It doesn't matter whether you're buried 30 years or you're cremated 30 minutes. Either way, your body will return to dirt, to dust of the earth. So if you're kind of on the fence about the whole burying, and I'm not buying or selling here, but I'm just saying cremation is just quicker. It's just, the, it's just a quicker process. And some of you are like, well, what about the glorified body, right? When we get to heaven, Scripture tells us about the glorified God, body. God's got it. He can take your dirt your molecular pieces and put them back together. We don't have to worry about that. I mean, God's the one who threw the stars in the sky. If he can do that, he can take your dirt and kind of put you back together into a glorified body. Yeah, but what about Uncle Bob? We, you know, we spread his ashes at sea and, um, you know, probably sharks ate some of the ashes and all that, right? God can fix that. God can take care of that. God can work through the digestive system of Uncle Bob in the shark in the sea. Okay? Don't worry about it. But someday you're going to die. You're going to return to the dirt. Your soul is going to go to heaven where you will spend eternity with God. And so Paul tells us what's most important here is that we put our hope in eternity. And the question for all of us this morning is, is your hope in Jesus Christ so that you can spend eternity with God forever 
and ever. Paul says, that's why I'm writing you, Titus. I want you to know. I want your church to know. It's about how we have our hope in all of eternity. Uh, verse 4. To Titus, my son, in our common faith. Kind of Titus, my son, my spiritual son, if you will. Grace and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul's writing to Titus here. He tells him very clearly. And Titus is on the island of Crete. Now, if you don't know where Crete is, I've, I've got a map here for you. Uh, Crete is in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 175 uh, miles long east to west, and it's about 35 miles north to south. It's, it's very, uh, lots of mountains on the island of Crete. Uh, it's, it's pretty uh, barren in many places. But perhaps what you need to know more than anything about Crete is it had a reputation, a bad reputation. And maybe you saw the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. This is, the island of Crete is Pirates the Mediterranean. I mean, that's where they were. That's where they hung out. Crete had a reputation of being wild and crazy, filled with parties and, and drunkenness and violence, and, and nobody wanted to go to Crete. You ended up at Crete. And so Timothy's like, I don't want to go to Crete. Uh, Titus is like, I don't want to go to Crete. And Paul's like, no, look how strategic it is. It's between Israel, Jerusalem, and uh, the rest of Greece, and uh, Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today, and certainly on the way to Italy. So Paul saw Crete as very strategic uh, to make the gospel known, but it was a terrible, uh, filthy place to go. In fact, their reputation was uh, that they were liars. So if you wanted to uh, call someone a liar, you would call them a Cretan. I mean, that's how bad it was. It was not a great place to go. Timothy didn't want to go there. I'm sure he didn't want to go there. Nobody wanted to go there. And theologians, many theologians speculate that God had purpose for this island, for Titus, for this place that God had put him. As if to say to the church, as if to say to us 2,000 years later, that anyone... Any place, no matter how horrible it might seem on the face of the earth, they can be reached for Jesus. They have value for Jesus. And I love that idea. I don't know if it's true or not. I just ran across that in one of the commentaries this week. But I can about imagine Titus praying to God time after time, God, why did you put me on Crete? Anybody else relate to that prayer? God, why did you bring me to Bloomington? Really? I mean, I, I prayed that prayer. She's like, are you kidding me? I mean, it's not filled with piracy and all the rest, but some days it feels pretty close, right? I don't know. But if you've ever prayed that prayer of, God, why did you put me here? What am I doing here? The community around me is so filled with sin and brokenness. I feel like there's enemies all around me. I mean, you ever felt that way? That you're in a place where you're just surrounded by evil. People who turn their backs on God just all around. What am I doing here? I mean, that was Titus's prayer. I can imagine time and time again. And so the, the, the book of Titus, the New Testament book of Titus, it's really this idea of how do we live faithfully as Jesus followers when we are surrounded by sin all around us. 
to Titus, my true son in the common faith, grace and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And Paul talks about, because, you know, Paul, of course, was a church planner. He would plan a church and keep going, plan a church and keep going, plan a church and keep going. Not Titus. He's like, okay, I'm here. I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. But things have become a mess in this new church plant in Crete. And so Paul says, I need you to put things in order. Fix it. Fix the things that are wrong. And to put in order in the Greek, it's just one word. Uh, epi de orthose. Epi meaning out or up. And de orthose meaning straight. Make something straight. Make it aligned. Straighten it out. You ever broken a bone? Who do you go to? You go to an orthopedic doctor, right? Same root word, ortho. Someone who fixes things, broken bones. Or you ever been to the orthodontist? Two of my kids got to go to the orthodontist. Their teeth were just all over the place in their mouth. And the orthodontist did some just amazing stuff in their mouth with these little wires and I mean, the, the, the end result after braces is just like, wow, they're, they're straight. But also, wow, look at the bill, right? But that's what an orthodontist does is they make the teeth straight. A, an orthopedic fixes bones. And it's the same word what Paul is saying to Titus. Make them straight, fix it, get things in alignment there. Things are crooked, things are out of whack. So how do we do this? Paul's going to tell Titus how to straighten, how to fix out. He's going to lay out this blueprint. And I'm just going to tell you, if you're taking notes, it starts with leadership. It starts with leadership in the life of the church. So here we go, verse 6. An elder must be blameless, Faithful to his wife. Other translation says someone who has only one wife, which I think we all agree is good. A man whose children believe and are open to the charge of being, uh, uh, and not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must also be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not giving to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. He's got to believe in the Bible. He's actually got to believe that this is God's word so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. That's the job description for an elder, for a leader in the life of the church. Isn't that awesome? Don't you wish that was your job description? It, it's my job description. I mean, it says, you know, rebuke some people sometimes. I got to tell you, I don't love rebuking you guys, but I'm called to. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm ordered to rebuke. And rebuke just simply means speak what's wrong. Tell the truth. If it's right, it's right. If it's God's truth, proclaim it. If it's wrong, call it out. I, 
I don't like that part of the job, but it, it's what I'm supposed to do. And, and to be clear, leaders in the church are not perfect. And Paul's going to uh, talk a little bit about this uh, to Titus. This is not about being perfect because that list I just read to you, don't talk to my family about that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here next week. I don't live up to all those things all the time. But these are things that are in my job description that I need to aspire to. And it's the standard. It's a very high bar. And so what Paul is telling Titus is if you want to you know, create a healthy church, a healthy people who are on mission together, it starts with you as the leader. And those who are serving in positions of leader, every single person, there's a very high standard, a very high bar for how you live your life. And isn't it interesting, the characteristics that Paul lays out uh, in this list to Titus, it has nothing to do so much with uh, how, how Titus, uh, uh, his job description in the sense of tasks. He, he doesn't say preach good sermons, teach good stuff, um, counsel people, uh, go to Panera and have coffee with people. It's, it's none of the tasks of doing. Paul says, this is, this is who a leader is. It really is all about character. It's really about who you are first and foremost. Before you do a single thing, Titus, pay attention, first of all, to who you are. In fact, I, I just, you know, I, as I look at this, these nine verses, I think what Paul is saying is, who you are becoming is more important than what you are doing. You know, the world is always going to tell us it's about your competence. It's about your skills. It's about what you do. And there's nothing wrong with those things, for sure. We want competent people. I want you to be competent. I want me to be competent. But what's even more important than our competence is our character. And that's exactly what Paul is telling Titus. Focus on both, for sure. But character matters more, just like my friend Yoda says. I mean, who wants to be Darth Vader? That's what the world tells us, to be just competent, competent, competent. We see the world. We can look around and we could talk about examples all day long of really smart people who don't have character. And that leads us down a very dark road. And maybe you see those people at your work. Maybe you see those people in your family. And Paul says, character is really important. It's more important, in fact, than competence. As the pastor of Faith Lutheran Church, my greatest contribution to this congregation is not what I do. It's not my teaching. It's not my preaching. It's, it's not my coffees at Panera. It's, it's none of the stuff I do. My biggest, my most important contribution to the life of our congregation is who I am. It's my character. And honestly, that is your greatest contribution as well. Because our foundation, it all starts with our character. And so to kind of stick with this, this building blueprint for a healthy church image or metaphor, we look for the soil. We, of course, build on the rock of Jesus Christ, right? Right? 
That's the soil. That's where we, 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 we begin. It's just like, okay, Jesus, we're starting with you. But then when we pour the foundation, that's character. Before we lay a single brick to build anything, our foundation has got to be solid with our character for all of us. Every single one of us, our character matters. And this is what Paul is telling to young Titus. It's not about what you do in the life of the church and on mission together. It's about who you are. And this is the most important thing that you need to hear today. Because remember, he says it's, it's about our hope in eternal life. And this matters for all of us. Because someday, every single one of you, your heart is going to stop beating. You're going to call the pastor. We're going to arrange for a funeral. A bunch of your friends are going to gather in a space, put you in the ground, or maybe in an urn somewhere. We'll throw dirt on you. Go back to church. Eat sandwiches and potato salad and we'll tell stories about you. It's gonna happen, every single one of you. And we might tell stories about your accomplishments, your competence. Oh, remember when dad got the salesman of the year award? Oh, remember when mom got a hole in one out on the golf course? Oh, remember this story and we'll laugh together and we'll cry together. That's what's gonna happen at your funeral. And there will be stories about your competence for sure. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, I've been to a few funerals. Most of the stories your loved ones, your family and friends are gonna talk about have to do with your character. Remember how gentle dad was with us when we should have been disciplined? Remember how much mom loved us even though we weren't very lovable? They're going to talk about your character, every single one of you. Your character matters. That's how you're going to be remembered in this world, by your family, by your loved ones, by your friends. All of our character matters. And this is what Paul is writing to Titus. Now I want to close with some good news. Anybody need some good news? I need some good news. Here's the deal. When you surrender your life to Jesus, he promises to forgive you your sins. He sets us free, right? I mean, this is the gospel. We know this. When we say, God, I'm at the end of my rope with me, just take over and we surrender our lives, he sets us free. He forgives us all of our sins, and that's really good news. But it doesn't just end there. And oftentimes, I think we preachers, we pastors, we kind of stop with the gospel being there, and this idea of we are free, it's all good. But there's a re second really important part to our salvation, uh, the salvation story that God uh, gives to us through Jesus Christ. And it's, he promises to not just forgive us of our sins and free us, but he promises to indwell us with the Holy Spirit. He promises to give us his very presence so that we can do things in this life that we can't ordinarily do. Is that good news or what? Because when we think about character, I'm not very self-disciplined. 
When I think about character, I can have a really short fuse. I can get angry really quickly. When we think about character, I could go on and on and on through the list. Brian is not a good person. But because I've surrendered my life, the Holy Spirit is working in my life and on my character. And the theological term here is called sanctification. And sanctification simply means that God makes us holy. Now, we're, none of us here today are, you know, have arrived yet in our holiness. Uh, our sanctifi- so the day we're saved, we are justified before God. But then our sanctification kicks in and the Holy Spirit says, I got it from here. And for the rest of our lives, as we daily surrender, it's not a one and done. You Lutherans know that, right? We do this daily. We surrender. For the rest of our lives, as we wake up every day and say, God, I'm done. Day's yours. Take over. The Holy Spirit says, I got it. Every single day, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us more and more and more and more and makes us holier and holier and holier until we get to face to face with God. And then we have arrived being fully sanctified. And so what the Apostle Paul writes in the church to Galatia is this. The Holy Spirit, not you, not any of us, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fruitfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So the good news is simply this. The Holy Spirit not only forgives you of your sin when you surrender to your life to him each and every day, but he also fills you with the, with the Holy Spirit so that you can be all these things that naturally you can't do on your own. I, I've talked to many of you. you. You don't do this well on your own. You're a lot like me. And so we need the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us. So Paul says to Titus, this is how we're going to build a healthy church it begins with Jesus and we're going to lay the foundation of character. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you are indeed a God who not only has forgiven us our sins, you have set us free, but God, you have also sent your Holy Spirit to come into our lives to equip us to live into these things that God, we just cannot do on our own. And so Lord, I pray I pray for each one of us as we're thinking about what it means today to be a healthy church, to be a healthy disciple of Jesus Christ. Convict us, challenge us, renew us, and send us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.